I'd like to begin with uh, the words of Lao Tzu, purported to be the author of the Tao Te Ching, who said, where the mystery is deepest is the gate of all that is subtle and wonderful. Where the mystery is deepest is the gate of all that is subtle and wonderful. <clears throat> this retreat is not going to end. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> I would bet that you thought it was going to end tomorrow. But this retreat um, didn't really happen exactly. We made it up. We made up the whole idea of a retreat. And we've all been making it up for these week or two weeks for some people, right? We've made up this idea that we're on retreat and we acted a certain way and then things happen and then we call them our retreat experience, right? And now we're not going to pretend we're on retreat anymore. Retreat is a state of mind. Retreat is an idea. But tonight, in honor of our retreat not ending, I would like to talk about um, what's called in, in Buddhism the three characteristics, the three marks of existence, or the three characteristics of existence which is anicca, dukkha, louder. A little louder? Yeah, thank you. Good. Now you can speak up even though you're not supposed to. So I want to talk about these three characteristics of existence, as they're called in Buddhism, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Anicca is impermanence, dukkha is usually translated as suffering, dis-ease, that which is difficult to bear, stress, and anatta, which is often translated as selflessness or not-self. And these three gates of practice, these three doorways, these three pathways of practice that reveal the mystery of awakening, the mystery of what's here. <clears throat> and if you remember, uh, earlier in the retreat, I spoke about the Buddha's intoxication and letting go of the intoxication with youth and health and life, and that this became a doorway for him. This became, this was quite important as he let go with the intoxication with permanence intoxication with the reification of reality, the solidification of reality. This was very important in setting the stage for the Buddha's awakening, and it's the function of the three characteristics to set the stage for awakening. When these three characteristics are apprehended, are understood, they really then... That, that understanding supports the turning towards freedom very completely. <clears throat> now this gateway, doorway, pathway of anicca, of impermanence, was also very important to Suzuki Roshi. And he said this, he said, when I realized, when I realized no moment could be repeated I was enlightened. When I realized, when, when, when it became real, when it became alive for him, when it became a living reality, that no moment could be repeated, he was enlightened. 
And we all know, intellectually, no moment can be repeated. And that's a good, good place to start, just that basic, simple, cognitive understanding. But that's not the depth of understanding that we seek. We seek a more um, profound or multi-leveled, multi-layered understanding of that truth, that no moment can be repeated, that in actuality every moment is totally fresh. It's totally fresh. And it's only stale based on our ideas and our beliefs and our habits and our conditioning. That conditioning overlays the freshness of what's here right now. This moment right now will never be repeated. This mystery of that we've all ended up here pretending to be on retreat together. This configuration of teachers and and staff and, and, and yogis will never, ever, ever be repeated. Can we feel the living reality of that? Can we sense into the freshness that's right here? The unsolidness of this. I know for myself and many of us, we tend, we tend to want to overlay the past on the present. It's really delusion. It's really a confusion to do that, but we do it. Even when a fresh moment happens, the first thing we do is refer to the past. Oh, this is like that. Oh, yeah, I know this because this happened like this before. But actually, it never really happened like this before. You know, it's almost sometimes I think, oh, there's, there's like this, this kind of computer in my mind. And it goes to this, as soon as something happens, it goes through this database. Oh, there it is. You know, happy. Now I'm happy. Oh, yeah, I'm happy like I'm, I was happy yesterday. Same, I'm happy. You know, I know happy. And and it's no, it's not actually a problem to have a memory or association, except when it denies the living freshness, the liveness that's here, the magic that's here, the mystery that's here. Right now, this is ordinary magic, ordinary mystery, the mystery of life the magic of life. And impermanence is one of the key components of this. Reality is not static. Not, it's, it's not stasis is the word that static comes from. There's no stasis in all of reality definitely all of physical reality. There's no stasis. There's no stasis meaning standing or stoppage. Everything's alive. Our bodies are alive. Our hearts are alive. Our minds are alive. And they're not static. There's no stasis at all. It's ecstasis. Without stasis is ecstasis. It's ecstatic life. And it may not be ecstatic in the, in the imagery we have usually about ecstatic in this moment. There, this is ordinary ecstasy right now. This is the, just the reality of ecstasy, of ecstatic right now. You know, if somebody's called an ecstatic, like certain people are called ecstatics, and it means a person subject to mystical experiences. And they are, because they're in touch with the dynamism of reality, the transience of reality, the impermanence of reality, the aliveness of reality. And it is inherently mystical 
inherently magical, inherently mysterious. And to be ecstatic is also means to be happy and joyful, as well as this kind of mystical self-transcendence. And so to know impermanence actually is to really know it, so that it's not, not known from a distance, not known as an intellectual idea, but we are impermanence itself, impermanence speaking right now, and impermanence listening right now. When we have that level of intimacy with impermanence, it's beautiful, because it's true. It's beautiful because it's what we are. We are impermanence in the form of the human being. Feel it for a minute. Feel your body right now. Feel your heart right now. Sense your mind right now. Just feel the simple aliveness that's here. Nothing special. Just aliveness that's effulgent is actually, it's like a bubble of, from, you know, champagne. Here we are, this moment. And then this moment that can never be repeated. And include, it includes the aches and pains in your body, maybe a little reverberation from the talking, doesn't feel quite as relaxed. Never to be repeated. Just this. Just now. Kind of a mysterious, wakeful presence. So the gate of impermanence. Now, one of the biggest questions as we leave retreat is how do we function? How do we function as as impermanence? How do we function from this wakefulness, this knowing, from this sense of openness and acceptance and kindness. Zen story. Zen master Wu Tzu said, I have practiced 20 years and now I truly know remorse. Hearing this, the master Ling Yun, Wu Tzu's cousin in the Dharma, declared, how marvelous these two words, no remorse. He's actually kind of complimenting him on his uh, authenticity and his confession. So he says, how wonderful, these two words, no remorse. The remorse which Wu Tzu speaks of is not, of course, the remorse of failing to realize the Dharma. No, it is the remorse of realizing the Dharma and yet not being able to freely manifest it in the activities of one's everyday life. Wu Tzu had come to awakening and attained peace of mind, yet had not fully integrated his experience into the everyday practice of the Buddha way. How many people know that remorse of leaving retreat and then not being able to live it in some way that we intuit, that we sense is possible? And I know for myself that was always a koan, a conundrum, leaving retreats. And it's still part of the art of leaving retreat, which is how to make the transition and then embody what we know. And so we're bringing it into the world not just as an intellectual idea, but as an embodied presence, as a living presence, as a living wakefulness. And as I said earlier, when we talked about speaking, of course, when we attempt 
to integrate our practice into the everyday, we're really adding a, quite a level of complexity. It's really graduate practice. This is like this is like going to the gym, and then going home is like going to work in your job, which you know maybe it's in a steel mill or something. You need your your muscle. And of course, wherever we go, we need the capacities we've been developing here and the support of the structure that the Buddha Dharma offers us. And maybe most fundamental is the support of right view, of right view, of really seeing that our life is our practice. This is this isn't our practice sitting here. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm being devil's advocate a little here. I, I just want to emphasize how much our life is our practice. This is the gym. It's a nice gym, you know. They did a good job remodeling the gym recently. <laughs> This is from Dogen. He says, Those who see worldly life as an obstacle to dharma see no dharma in everyday actions. They have not yet discovered that there are no everyday actions outside of dharma. This is the non-dual perspective. There's not a dharma at IMS and then not at the airport. There's not a dharma on your cushion and not in your workplace. There's not a dharma in this hall and then not at your school or with your children or your lover. The dharma is sitting in your seat and will continue to sit in your seat maybe forever. I don't know definitely for the rest of this life. But maybe even more than that. I don't know. So right view becomes very important. Really seeing with the eye of wisdom and then letting that understanding, which right view is also called right understanding, impact our intention. This is a little bit I'm going now into the Eightfold path. So right view conditions intention or aspiration or inclination or um, desire. We could call it right desire. Suzuki Roshi would ask his students, what's your heart's inmost request? What's your heart's inmost desire? Your deepest request, desire, want. What is it? And he trusted, he trusted that our inmost request is for freedom or happiness or wholeness or healing or enlightenment or liberation or the sure heart's release. Whatever, whatever you, words you use to describe the deepest human aspiration, the deepest human longing, whatever words you describe for that, to really recognize it and then begin to reshape our lives to live that aspiration, to realize our aspiration, to redefine and reshape and and recommit ourselves so that our life becomes centered around what's deepest within us as human beings. And this is really the, what the Buddha did. He, his inmost desire was for total freedom, total freedom, total happiness. And he reoriented his life. He read defined his life, reshaped everything to realize that desire, that longing, that yearning that's archetypal 
in the human experience. He then let all other desires come in the service of realizing freedom, his deepest desire. And so again, as we move down the Eightfold Path from view to aspiration, and then the aspiration conditions our actions. And so then the, the uh, practice for us as part of going into the world is to really see how do we want to live our life in alignment, oriented towards our deepest goal, our deepest love. And it takes a little discipline. And the word discipline um, is not a well-liked word these days. I don't know if you notice that, but it's, I think it gets a bad rap. Of course, it has the same root, root as disciple. And it always had to do before, long before it had to do with um, some kind of authority and you know, having to be some way. Discipline always had to do with learning. Being a disciple always had to do with learning. And so when I say discipline, I mean that as we reorient towards our deepest value, we have to learn how to shape our lives to enact and realize that value. It's a learning. It's a practice, like all of the Dharma. Now, one of the great supports that I know for this living of what we've touched here is Sangha. The word Sangha is mostly translated as community, the community of practitioners. Originally, it was really meant the community of uh, awakened beings from the Buddhist Sangha, or then it meant the monastic Sangha. Now it's taken on a more conventional um, uh, idea of just community. And it's a beautiful understanding that there's a community of spirit, a community of spirit that supports each person's awakening. Actually, it's a great word. It's it's actually a community, communis, in, in uh, communi. Um, and in San Francisco, the buses system is called the Muni, Communi. Muni, Muni means to be of service. And so to really be part of a community is to serve awakening. Of course, it means the same root as communist and stuff like that. And personally, I find it one of the most inspiring areas in my own practice. You know, I lead a, a quite a growing sangha in San Francisco now, the Insight Meditation Community of San Francisco. And I just love that group. I miss that group so much when I'm away. I just, you know, and I've, go, I've been going every night, every Sunday night for 14 years that I'm in town. And it's just beautiful to watch what's happened as a community and then all the individuals in the community and the, the friendships and the love and the support. Now, community is, Sangha is not everybody's cup of tea. Okay? You know, when we talk about the three refuges, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, people love the Buddha. They love that idea, right? Look at it. <laughs> it looks good up here, right? But, the Dharma, the Dharma's, you know, that sounds great. The teachings of liberation and freedom and love and happiness, that's great. Sangha, that's like the, the downstairs, you know, servant. It's like, that has to do with people. <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> Often when I talk about this, I, I quote from uh, Sartre, who said, hell is other people. <laughs> and it's true. But it's also true that heaven is other people. There's a story, Ajahn Chah, 
was visiting Ajahn Sumedho. So Ajahn Sumedho is the oldest Western disciple of Ajahn Chah, who's Jack Hornsfield's teacher and was teacher for many people in our community. And um, Ajahn Chah sent Ajahn Sumedho, said, go to England, start a monastery. And Ajahn Sumedho went. He started this monastery, and after a few years, Ajahn Chah came and visited. He said to him, well, how, how's it going? How are people doing here, a small monastic community? And uh, Ajahn Sumedho said, oh, people are getting along fine. They're doing really good, and they're really, everybody's getting along fine. And Ajahn Chah looked at him, he said, oh, well, there won't be much wisdom here. <laughs> Sangha <laughs> has to do with people, and it and we there's so much to learn in relationship, because people are dukkha. <laughs> you know, sometimes um, I teach with my wife, who's the real Zen student, by the way, or was. Actually, she's come over to the dark side with me. <laughs> but, um, but she was for many years. I actually met her in Tassajara Zen Monastery, and where she lived. And, and we teach together sometimes. And what's interesting is always at the end, no matter what we can teach, you know, the Brahma Viharas and love and compassion and joy and equanimity, or we can teach selflessness and emptiness and no self, and doesn't matter. At the end, the first question is, well, how is your relationship? Right? How is it? How is it being in relationship? You guys are, how oh, you practice and you're in relationship and it must be wonderful. And the first thing I say is, relationship is dukkha. <laughs> And once we know that, we can have some really good relationships. We, we actually can have beautiful relationships. As long as we're not idealizing relationships. As long as we know that... Because dukkha is part of human life. It's not all of it. But it's in, it's in this realm of existence, the human realm, it's characterized. One of the characteristics is dukkha. It's not a problem that there's dukkha. <laughs> it's actually considered in the human realm of existence, and there's all these different realms in Buddhist cosmology, heaven realms and, and lower realms and realms of hungry ghosts and realms of devas and heavenly beings. The human realm is considered the optimal realm for enlightenment to happen because there's the right amount of dukkha. In the heaven realms, there's actually not enough dukkha. And they just, you know, kind of live on nectars and sport all their, you know, for thousands of years. There's not even much impermanence. And they just, there's no motivation to get awakened. And then, of course, they drop from there to the lower realms after, you know, a few million years. In the lower realms, it's too, it's, there's too much suffering. It's too hard. It's too painful. Or, or the lifespan is too short. This is the optimal realm. And partly because it has, you know, you know, enough dukkha and hopefully not too much dukkha. So it's really important to begin to recognize dukkha as one of the inherent qualities in our life and not think we're doing it wrong or somebody else is doing it wrong or that we got it wrong, or that practice has failed. This is part of our practice, to recognize dukkha. And then there's a whole question of responding to it, and that I'll come, come to it in a little bit. But dukkha is part of our life. And so to come here, and sometimes people think, as Sharon Salzberg said, after she first practiced in Asia, she kind of imagined herself coming back to America and walking down the streets of New York about a foot off the street, you know, a foot, you know, kind of levitating. And, you know, because, you know, we have a lot of ideas, beliefs, opinions, views. They may not be the way it is.
Now, as part of practice and relationship, and this is something Tara was pointing at last night. I want to re-emphasize it. Um, my daughter, when she was growing up, somewhere around 9 or 10, or maybe 10 or 11, right, pre-pubescent, we started doing a little practice. It was about a one-minute practice we would do maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. And the practice was this. We would sit together, and she would look at me, and I would look at her, and she would have to see I'm not her dad, and I would have to see she's not my daughter. That was a very powerful practice, very powerful. We did it for a number of years, and we, she'd do it like for about 20 or 30 seconds, and she'd say, okay, that's enough, that's enough. <laughs> Because it would get a little weird. She'd actually see me beyond the role, beyond the idea, beyond the identification. And it would get a little strange because, you know, she's young and, you know, she, you know, it's a little strange at that point to see your parent is actually not your parent. That they may be something else, something more mysterious than that. And if, but of course she loved it when I would see she's not my daughter. She loved that. Absolutely. That was cool. And then when she got about 14, this is, she was, you know, a teenager, I would tell her to do something and she'd say, you're not my dad. (laughs) 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 She was... (laughs) But this is a practice you can do with anybody. Now, let me be careful here. You can, first of all, you can do it with anybody who agrees to do it with you, right? right? You can sit together and look and say, you know, you're not a student and I'm not a teacher. And to, and to actually see that right now, that I'm not a teacher and you're not a student. Those are just roles we've been playing as part of this game that we've been doing of pretending to be on retreat. Right, and and, it, and they're good roles, and they're fine. They're 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 important roles. But there's something more here than teacher and student. There's something more profound here. And it points to anatta. It points to selflessness. It points to that we're not our roles. We're not our identification. We're not our beliefs. We're not. We're not even positioned, really. We're not any position that we've taken or will take. There's something much more here. And so one way you can do this in home, I mean, you can do it with somebody who agrees to, but also you could just look at anybody and see, oh, they're, they're not the male person. Or, or you can do it with your mother, but maybe you don't want to tell them you're doing it. You know, you know or, or whoever it might be. But it, definitely look at your partner, your friend, somebody you really know at some point and see that, oh, that's not who they are. It's a part of who they are. But there's something much more mysterious and real when we start to look beyond the image, beyond the idea, beyond the role, beyond the history You know, when my father died, who was 91 or 92 by the time he died, one of the the insights that I had when he died was, oh my God, he's not an old man anymore. That I'd kind of locked him in in those last few years in my mind as an old man. And I realized, oh, that's not who he is. I mean, it becomes very clear, right? (laughs) He's not an old man anymore. And I realized he wasn't any of those temporal roles he played. He was all of it and much more. All of it and none of it. And so anatta is not some abstract idea. It's just the truth of what's here. Things are impermanent. There's an inherent dis-ease in human life that is just part of the deal. And it's selfless in any permanent way. 
And this brings us to how do I function in the world, part two. Because the first way I talked about was just, and we'll say more tomorrow, is, you know, how to function, right view and right intention and right aspiration, right action. But there's another level to this. There's another octave to functioning from awakening, from anatta, from freedom, from awareness. As freedom, as awareness. The Zen story goes like this. Student comes to Zen master and says, "What's what's the goal of a lifetime of practice?" Really valid question, important question. What's the goal of a lifetime of practice? And the, and imagine what would you answer? You're the teacher. What would you answer? Anybody? To practice, what else? Pardon? Freedom. There is no goal. Hey, you know the story. Very good. The answer that the Zen master gave, he didn't give liberation, freedom, wholeness, compassion, any of that. He said, an appropriate response. What's the goal of a lifetime of practice? An appropriate response. Where does an appropriate response come from? How do we respond appropriately to reality? How does that happen? That happens through the mystery of anatta, through the mystery of emptiness, shunyata. Through the mystery of starting to recognize, to study the self, and to forget the self. And then to forget the self is to awaken with all things. And awakening is responsive. Reality can respond to reality. It's not so much about us doing something, but it's about seeing with the eye of wisdom, letting the contactfulness with the heart of compassion be there, and then the presence of the body of awakening. That when these capacities have come alive in us, they respond naturally. They respond organically. We don't do it. Like I said about the Dharma, we don't do it, it does us. There's another way they say it in, is, um, you are not it, it is you. You are not it. It is you. That reality can, when it's freed, there's a a beautiful um, um, description of a woman, lay woman, her awakening. It was uh, her communication between a monk and this lay woman who practiced for a number of years in in the Theravadan tradition who had awakening. And the name of, she described it, was freedom freed. Freedom freed. This is right action at the deepest level. It's not a doing, it's a being. And then the being responds to reality. The compassion is not something we do. Compassion is a natural response of the heart when it's freed, when it's open, when it's unhardened, uncovered, unveiled. It's the natural response to suffering. You don't have to do it. That's why we practice so that things let go, the obstacles let go, the hindrances let go, the obscurations to who and what we are release, and then the heart functions, the mind functions. We don't have to do it. And this is right action at the deepest level. And I want to just say something about right, because, you know, I'm talking about the Eightfold Path and here's woven in here, right view, right intention. I want to just clarify the word right. Many people um, find it um, unhelpful, and so they translate it other ways, like wise attention, 
or um, another good translation is uh, skillful attention, or there's another word, um, wise, skillful, authentic, you know, mindfulness, authentic view. Sometimes Stephen Batchelor translates it that way. Um, I like the word right uh, just because I kind of grew up with it in the Dharma. But also, if you look up the word right in the dictionary, one of the first meanings of right means to bring into accord with truth. To bring into accord with truth. View that brings us into accord with truth. Intention that brings us into alignment with truth. Action that is in accord with truth. And so this is the f- what I'm beginning to describe here about right action is the functioning of freedom. Freedom functions. Or as I, I talked about it the other night, they describe it in the Tibetan tradition, the ornamentation of Rigpa, the ornamentation of the awakened mind, the beauty of, of what awakening is. It, it's not just in and of itself, but that it functions, it responds appropriately to reality. It's sensitive to reality. It's open to reality. How, do, how else could it happen? We have to be fully present for the appropriate response to come forward. And that's why we build, develop, nourish, cultivate our presence here moment by moment by moment by moment. So that presence can then function. You know, if, if, if there's no rules, there's no rules. Why? Because every moment is actually totally fresh. And by that I mean, you know, you can't refer to, you know, if somebody falls down, the appropriate response may be to reach out and pick them up. But sometimes that might not be the appropriate response depending on the immediacy of that moment. Sometimes the person who fell down is a toddler who's learning how to walk and they actually need to fall down and get up and fall down and get up because if you pick them up every time, they will never learn how to stand up. And so it's an, it would be inappropriate to always pick them up. And that's what I mean by there's no rules. Not that there's no guidelines or you can do anything, but that it's the living reality of each moment now that determines what the appropriate response is. And that's why we encourage you, and we've encouraged you both in the instructions and in the Dharma talks and in your practice to keep sensing and feeling, touching, knowing, now, what's here. Not as an intellectual idea, as a felt sense, living, alive reality. Because that is where the appropriate response will come from, from you but not you as an idea, not you as history, not you as knowledge even. The knowledge is in service of the true response. And the true response is a mystery where it comes from. It comes from shunyata, from emptiness. It comes from being, the ground of being of, that we're all an expression of. And so this ornamentation, the jewels of this ornamentation are love our compassion, our intelligence, our creativity, strength, power, energy, steadfastness, um, contentment, joy, patience, courage, clarity, openness. These are the Buddha qualities. And we don't do them. They come forward as we free the heart and mind to be itself, to show itself, to reveal itself, display itself, and to function as awakening. This is why sometimes they call awakening with these metaphors, like I said, the unconditioned, the uncreated, we don't create compassion. You know, Tara likes to, to point us, like, where does the thought come from? Where does compassion come from? 
Where does love come from? Where does creativity come from? Where does generosity come from? Where does power come from? Real power. Not, not the distorted power we used to. But look at the power of the Buddha. Real power. Spiritual power. True power. Power that serves the good and has served the good for 2,600 years. And what did he do? He awakened. And we see the power of that. The center, us being here, is all part of that amazing power that is part of our inherent nature when it gets freed, released, awakened. And so these three characteristics anicca, dukkha, anatta, start to point us at the awakened state and at the mystery of it. We have no idea where love comes from. (laughs) But thank God, or somebody, for it. (laughs) Thank God. This is from Stephen Batchelor. And and listen to the language, because he has slightly different words. Instead of impermanence, suffering, and... um, 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 Uh, Well, he uses selflessness, but he uses dynamic for impermanence and precarious for suffering. He says, repeatedly embracing the dynamic, precarious, and selfless flow of experience gradually erodes this ingrained conviction of our separate existence. To enhance this further still, it helps to let go not just of attachment to a fixed self, but of all views that can find and fix experience. This can be achieved by recognizing that however we describe it, even as dynamic, precarious, and selfless, what is happening is utterly mysterious. Can you feel it? Can you taste it? Can you smell it? touch it. It is you. We are a mystery. So beginning to let go of our ideas and our beliefs and our views and our opinions, our fixed, our fixedness, of course it's totally related to this amazing, changing nature of reality. It's just, they go hand in hand, or moment to moment. This is beginner's mind in Zen. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the, in the expert's mind, there are few. One of the challenges, it's always, I love, how many people this was their first retreat? Raise your hand, let's see. Right on. Beautiful. I love that so much. I love, because you have beginner's mind. For those of us who practice, we have to work a little bit to get there. We have to remember it. We have to let go of everything we've done, all the retreats we've done. So we can be like you. And this be our first retreat, which of course it is, in a real sense. It's the realm of not knowing that we're pointing at here with beginner's mind, of not knowing. And Suzuki, not Suzuki, Krishnamurti wrote a great book, great book called Freedom from the Known. Freedom from the Known. You know, he, what, what he's pointing at is our knowing blocks reality. It obscures reality. It obscures the mystery. It obscures what we don't know. And of course, what we don't know is so much more vast than the little bit of knowledge we have as human beings on this earth. I mean, just look at the universe. Go outside tonight. Look at the dark sky and the vastness. What do we know? You know, the, the often spiritual, the depth of spirituality is characterized by light. But one of my teachers actually 
He says, no, that's, that's wrong. Actually, if you look out at the vastness of the universe, it's much more characterized by the dark, by the black, by the mystery of reality than the little pinpricks of light. So Krishnamurti wrote the book, Freedom from the Known. And I loved the title so much, I never read the book. <laughs> it's true. He, he nailed it in the title. <laughs> Why would you want to read the book? <laughs> like, it would just be Papancha, proliferation after that. You know, and this understanding is in many traditions. You know, there's a Jewish story that Joseph used to tell many, many years ago when I was first practicing um, about a little rabbi in a little village in Russia. And he used to walk across the village every morning, 40 years, home to synagogue. And there's a Cossack, also grew up in the village, knows the rabbi. One day the Cossack is pulling his chain a little. He says, oh, Rabbi, where are you going? He says, don't know. And the Cossack takes offense. He thinks the rabbi is dissing him a little. What do you mean you don't know? Every day you get up, you go from your house to the synagogue. What do you mean you don't know? I'll show you. He takes him, he grabs him by the scruff of his neck, takes him. It's a little, you know, jail, not much of a jail, just a, you know, room. And takes him, he puts him in the room. And he's about to close the door and the rabbi looks at him. He says, you see, you don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Notice how much, how much of you thought you know what's going to happen tomorrow. How much of you thought about tomorrow and what's going to happen? Planning it, thinking it, making it up, pretending you know, and then believing what you're pretending. Or, or how much... Did you know what would actually happen on this retreat? You know, I mean, we knew, you know, most of you, not the beginners, but like if you've been to retreat before, you knew you were going to sit and walk. But did you know what would actually happen within the living reality? In Zen it said that not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate, and it's intimate because we get so close to reality that we don't know, that we become part of this effulgent, dynamic display that we are part of. Not knowing is most intimate, and it's what we like about intimacy. When we say we're intimate, one of the qualities we like is that it's mysterious. When it gets unmysterious, it doesn't feel intimate anymore. Actually, then we get bored. When we don't know somebody, we first met them, you know, and we're attracted, and it's like, wow, who is that person? And, you know, what are they about? We just want to know everything about them because we don't know. We love the not knowing. And we feel very intimate when we're close with them. We just don't even know who they are. We forget we don't know who anybody is. We don't. It's really, I mean, just, and it, and it doesn't mean we're going to walk around not knowing who anybody is. This is an important also part of Zen. So they say not knowing is most intimate, but then they also say not knowing doesn't mean you don't know. Right? You know where to go and who's who on, that, on the relative level. But there's another level to taste that you can taste in your daily life just by looking at times, just by remembering to see, just by feeling the living reality of who and what you are. As you felt it and tasted it here in a moment during the meditation or during the talks or during the walks. Jack Cornfield, the teacher for many of us, Living fully means jumping into the unknown. Living fully means jumping into the unknown, dying to all of our past and future ideals and beliefs and being present with things as they are. 
Things as they've come to be is actually a more accurate way to say it. Things as they've come to be because our starts to fixate them and they're only going to turn into the next moment. It is only by such surrender to moments of truth that we can participate in the mystery of our lives. Or as the great Zen rogue and master Ikkyu said, he said, this brick house I live in is really the sky and just as precious. It's all a beautiful mystery. Who thought of this? Actually, Jack and Joseph and Sharon thought of it and some other people, but it came out of their thought. I mean, what a mystery that they had a thought and then this, and we're all here. We're all a dream in their mind in a certain way. And somebody dreamed them. (laughs) A couple more moments here. A couple more things to say about the mystery. This is from Tony Packer, who's a Zen teacher, kind of an iconoclastic Zen teacher. I don't even know if she calls herself a Zen teacher anymore. She's that kind of iconoclastic. The emergence and blossoming of understanding, of love and intelligence has nothing to do with any tradition. No matter how ancient, no matter how impressive, it has nothing to do with time. It has, happens completely on its own when a human being questions, wonders, listens and looks without getting caught, stuck in fear, caught in pleasure, attached to pain. When self-concern is quiet, is in abeyance, heaven and earth are open. The mystery, the essence of all life, is not separate from the silent openness of simply listening. Of this moment, of this ordinary mystery, of forms appearing magically in all these different shapes, colors, Sizes, configurations, not two of whom are the same, just like not any moment is the same, can never be repeated. One of my favorite Zen stories, that usually I tell a much longer version, but I'll give you the short version, is about a fellow who um, got enlightened after he got dysentery and he was sitting on the can for seven days. It can happen like that. <laughs> and it's a long, it's a beautiful story. I love telling it, but that's the crux of it, that he gets enlightened after getting dysentery, sitting in one spot for seven days. You know, it, it resonates with what um, you was saying about the seven days of mindfulness, He was very mindful for seven days. And he wrote a poem. And this is traditional in many of the, both the Buddha wrote poems of awakening and many people write poems, Zen tradition, Theravada tradition. They're beautiful poems of enlightenment from the early women in the Buddhist, in the Theravada tradition, from the men. Beautiful history in Buddhism of these poems. So here's his poem. His poem was radiant, spiritual, what is this? The minute you, the moment you blink your eyes, you've missed it. The shovel, probably shit stick would be the more accurate uh, translation, but the shovel by the toilet shines with light. After all, it was just me all along. Radiant, spiritual, what is this? That's the great Zen question. What is this? Now, tell me. (laughs) Never did that before. (laughs) You really, even I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. That's good, I like that. Um, (laughs) 
You know, there was this story in the three-month course where Jack and Joseph and Sharon invited a Zen master who was visiting to give the talk at the end of three months. And he got up. People had been sitting three months like this. He got up, he looked at them, stern Zen master, three months practice, waste of time. What is this? This moment is all there is. And the moment you blink your eyes, you miss it. It's all about here and now. Here and now. Can we keep, in whatever way, to whatever extent, kindly, skillfully, using all the skills we've developed to keep orienting and finding our presence here now? No matter how many times we've lost, it doesn't matter. Here's one of the great things I know. The present moment will never reject you. It's the best lover. It will never reject you. It's the best mother. It will never reject you. When you get present, it's here. It's here for you, always. And no matter how many times you forget or go away, it's not like, you know some lover who then gets mad and upset and says, I won't talk to you. It's right here, available for you, always. The shovel by the toilet shines with light. It's everywhere. Kabir says, when the eyes and the ears are open, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. When we wake up, we see the, the beauty, the magic, the mystery of each impermanent, transient, changing moment, of each display of reality. After all, it was just me all along. We are what we seek, the wise ones say. We are what we seek. We don't get Buddha nature. We don't get true nature. We are Buddha nature. We are true nature. I'm going to end with a reading from Ajahn Chah. I feel like it sums up the spirit of a lot of the retreat that we've just participated in or pretended to participate in. He says, the original heart-mind, the original heart-mind shines pure, clear, clear water with the sweetest taste. The original heart-mind shines like pure, clear water with the sweetest taste. But if the heart is pure, is our practice over? No, we must not cling even to this purity. We must go beyond all duality, all concepts, all bad, all good, all pure, all impure. We must go beyond self and no self, birth and death. True purity is limitless, untouchable, beyond all opposites and all creation. We take refuge in Buddha. We take refuge in Dharma. We take refuge in Sangha. This is the heritage of every Buddha that appears in the world. What is this Buddha? When we see with the eye of wisdom, we know that the Buddha is timeless, unborn, unrelated to any body, any history, any image. Buddha is the ground of all being, the realization of the truth of the unmoving mind. So the Buddha was not enlightened in India. In fact, he was never enlightened, never born, never died. This timeless Buddha is our true home, our abiding place. When we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, all things in the world are free for us. They become our teacher, proclaiming the one true nature of life. Let's sit together for a minute, please.
Thank you for your kind and patient attention. We have about 20 minutes or so for walking practice. And I just want to remind you, encourage you to really hold to the practice now. It will support the integration, the metabolization, the digestion of the retreat. The walking will help. The sitting will help. The silence will really help right now. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.